Welcome to the Future of Processes podcast. I'm Ben Merton, CEO of Unifies, and each week I'll be talking to people in manufacturing about what it really takes to bring products to life. So this is about building an organizational culture, leadership, product design, supply chain, change management, how to attract the best talent, and in particular, how we can create better, more human processes for the factories of tomorrow. So I'm joined today by Chris Sidney, who manages quality, continuous improvement and metrology at the Winbro Group. Now, Winbro builds and supplies high-speed electro-discharge machining, laser ablation, and electrochemical machining technologies, which is just a fancy way of saying they make machines that make holes in things. But not just any holes. Their machines are used in aviation jet engines and industrial turbines, semiconductors, and medical devices. So it's great to see you, Chris. Looking forward to having you on the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. (laughs) Great. So first things first, I know that you are a recipient of the Whitworth Scholarship, which is part of the UK's long tradition of engineering excellence. And obviously this was named after Sir Joseph Whitworth, who was a famous 19th century engineer who standardized screw threads, invented the Whitworth rifled musket, which was one of the earliest examples of a sniper rifle, along with rifled artillery that was rejected by the British Army but used in the American Civil War, which I think was fascinating. The UK obviously has a long tradition of engineering, but in recent years, I feel like it's been in a state of decline, possibly. Why do you think that is? And what do you think can be done about it? Well, well, firstly, I've got to congratulate you on your research because that's a a splendid intro. And you asked me about the decline of UK manufacturing. Yes, since the 70s. In 1970, it was about a quarter of the economic output for the UK, and it's dropped now to somewhere around 10 or 11%. And there's a few things that have probably driven that. There's investment in skills hasn't been there for a good part of the latter half of last century. And the trade unions probably had a lot to do with the decline by trying to make sure that they retained their jobs, which, you know, people are resistant to change. People don't like change typically. And that's probably one of the things that's caused it. But on the flip side, what's happening in the UK now is that there's a recognition that there's a skill shortage and a need for people trained in what we call the STEM subjects. So science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, and a drive to give those options now to people of school age. So you can do a BTEC instead of a GCSE, which is a more engineering focused subject, if you so choose. And that's a fair recent development. So the UK excels well in precision industries, but is trying to address the long decline that happened before that. Right. Interesting. And so coming to your current role at Winbrow, what I'd like to know is a little bit more about you and what you do on a day-to-day basis. Okay. So (laughs) my full job title is Quality Continuous Improvement and Metrology Manager, which is a little bit of a mouthful. I'll break that down. So I'm the Quality Manager for the UK Wimbro site. Um, we have sites in the US and also in Taiwan as well. Our parent companies in Taiwan, I should clarify that. But basically, I'm responsible for the upkeep of the quality management system, which basically means that I'm trying to make sure we meet national and international standards throughout the business. It's no mean feat. Alongside that, um, I'm responsible for continuous improvement. I have a background in continuous improvement. So we look to measure the outputs of what we're doing, find out what's not quite good enough and improve it in basic terms. And then I also manage a team of metrology engineers who basically look after the measurement side of the business. So they support the production areas, they program coordinate measuring machines, optical measuring machines, and other equipment besides. And I sort of manage that function because it kind of sits neatly within my skill set. Quite a bit to go at, but an enjoyable job nonetheless. Right. And what are those external standards that you uh, comply to? 
you'll have heard of ISO 9001. That's a fairly well-known quality management standard. And then there's AS9100, which is the aerospace equivalent. So we are in the aerospace sector and it's got additional requirements in it because of the nature of the products that we make. Right. What's interesting to me is that obviously you're based in the UK, but you work with US companies as well. And so I'm fascinated by what you see is that the key cultural differences between the two, <laughs> as far as their approach towards quality and continuous improvement are concerned. Okay. So I'll take Wimbro as an example. We have the same certificate, same quality management system exists in both sides. We have a site in South Carolina and a site in the UK. And we have the same set of requirements for both. I think the key difference I've learned is when I've gone to the US to do an improvement project, the people there are so welcoming. They embrace you, they welcome you into the business, and they really go out of their way to try and help you achieve. And in the UK, what you tend to find is there's a little bit more skepticism when you come to do a project. People question more and go, well, why are we doing this? And so you have to work on the hearts and minds a little bit more. It's just a little cultural aspect I find really interesting in, in the US. I got called sir a lot. I found that really not unnerving, but I wasn't used to it. <laughs> I don't get called sir. Whereas in the UK, the more hung on, why are we doing this? What's the reason why? And then you have to win them over before you then embed whatever solution you're looking for. There's pros and cons to both. I enjoy doing projects in both. Americans are more receptive. And as a fellow Brit, we can be self-deprecating about this as much as possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think yeah, sums it up neatly. I mean, one thing I think in the US, there's a little bit more of a, a follow the leader culture. So if you have a bad leader, people will be more, oh, well, yeah, he said so, so I shall do. Whereas in the UK, they tend to challenge a little bit more. That's just subtle differences in culture, which I've found, but I've enjoyed working in both countries. Do you deal with any countries other than the UK and the US? Are there any other locations? So the company does, yes, we sell machine tools and our products worldwide. Personally, I've only really experienced if the Wimbro in the US and the UK. I've done some training courses in Germany when I worked for my previous employer. That was an eye-opener as well. That was, that was good, but uh, yeah. Right. So, I mean, I suppose in that context, one of the questions that I have is around, obviously, the change management aspect of your role in continuous improvement and quality and the challenges that you may have faced in that in the past. Do you have any specific examples of successes or failures in managing change that you can talk about? Actually, one of each would be great. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I've, I can talk about a project that we did in the UK and there were sort of, there are wins in both, but learning points in both as well. So I did one in the UK, one in the US, and I'll talk to you about both of those if that's okay. So in the UK one, we were making a large structural part and we're drilling a series of holes as a pattern into this part. Unfortunately, I can't tell you the customer. I'm not allowed to do that, but you know, rules are rules. But what was happening was this process had been running fine. And then all of a sudden we measured this one part that came off the machine. First few holes were in perfectly in position. Then they jumped to out of tolerance, just out of tolerance. And then they jumped back in when you went further around, then they jumped back out again. And there was no logic or pattern to any of this. And so a group of people gets together and, and everyone wants to be right. They want to say, oh, I told you it was that. You know, that's just the way it works. So the maintenance guys, well, the machine's wrong. The, it needs taken to pieces and all these parts need replacing. And then other people would have different opinions as they went through. And what we settled on was, right, let's just be logical. What's the data tell us happened? You know, the data tells the story. So I get involved. And one of the things I did was just say, well, let's map out the measurements and see where they changed. And we pinpointed the points that they changed. And very quickly, we were able to identify that every time they changed, the nose guide on the machine had been off to do a calibration. And it was, ah, okay, there's, there's your smoking gun. Let's go and find out what's going on. So the nose guide holds an electrode and that's what does the drilling. And it goes off to a point in the machine 
does some touches, works out where it is, and then applies an offset into the process to make sure that you keep control. So the very item that was designed to try and control the process was the item that was driving the defect into the part, which I found quite ironic, if you want to call it that. But we were able to do some tests. We were able to then set up and say, okay, well, what is it about that process that's failing? So we tested it a number of ways, electrode rotating, not rotating, different speeds, and found that the variation reduced significantly if we slowed it down and had the electrode rotating. So that's what we did. We fixed it by managing the process that controls the input to the drilling of the part. And since then, good capability. So just by using data-driven tools and asking what is the problem, what is not the problem, and working with everyone who is involved, you're able to hone it into a solution. Right. And so that sounds like it was a success using data and being able to root cause this out and establish what the problem was and then fix it. Give me an example of something which hasn't worked as well as you'd wanted it to. Some of the projects early on in my career where perhaps being eager and trying to bite off more than you can chew, (laughs) you know, show how good you are, trying to solve an airflow problem in a turbine blade. And we couldn't work out why some blades were delivering a decent airflow, some weren't. And I ended up in a, you could phrase analysis paralysis. You're just going round and round and round, trying to hunt for a solution because the scope of the project was far too wide. So the management team wants you to solve a massive problem, but you're unable to do so because it's not bike size enough to go through. That was a, over 10 years ago. So I'm a little light on detail, if I'm being honest with that one. It's difficult to explain what I would do differently, but I think certainly for every project that I've done, the definition stage is the most crucial. So the one way you define what the problem is and crucially what you want to achieve is really important. They have to be specific and measurable. And sometimes, and earlier on in my career, I wasn't so good at challenging back and saying, I don't think that's the way to do this, which is probably one thing I've learned the most as I've progressed. Right. It's uh, defining things at the beginning and being clear about what you're trying to achieve. But to what extent do you find that people come into this process of being able to effect change? And have you had any experience at all with challenges in getting other people to uh, either see your way of looking at things or to change so that you can achieve your objectives more effectively? Yeah, people are in interesting things because they're not like data. Everybody is different. And I think one thing I've learned the most is if you're going to have a successful project, if you're going to improve something, you need different personality types in the room, in your team. Now, sometimes you just need people in the room saying, right, we need a result now. What are we going to do to move this forward? And then you need other people who are good at knitting the team together because naturally people are going to clash. They're not going to get on with each other all of the time. Yeah, it's really interesting. Have you got any examples or instances of where you've seen people being particularly resistant to change that you've had to win over in some way to a new way of doing things? It's a new way of doing things. Some people like change and a lot of people don't. And I think I read a statistic somewhere once, 60% of people are happy to just follow. They naturally don't like change. People like things just to be the way they are. And then there's the 20% of people who really change-orientated, like to drive you forward, and 20% of people who will really resist. They don't like change at all. Now, the 20%, they are trying to pull the 60% in different directions. So you'll always meet people who, they just fear change because it's unnatural to them, not because it threatens them in any way, but will just not want to go along with whatever suggestion you're making. And most people who are resistant to change are resistant because they just don't like change itself, not because of anything you're offering them. Most of the time, you just have to get to know them. Go and work with them. Roll your sleeves up. Go down and do the job with them. Show that you're not a threat to them. You've got someone who's leading a project. Here comes someone who thinks he knows it all already. Well, that's actually not the case. Let me come and understand it from your perspective. Let me come down and do the job with you for a day and see 
if I can understand why you like things the way you've got them. Things like visual layout of a shop floor would be a, a prime example because you're going into somebody else's workspace. Respect that. Respect the fact that you're wanting to make an improvement, but really it's them who should drive it, not you. And you're there to provide structure and help them in the right direction, but not tell them how it should be done. It's a really difficult skill. Really, really difficult skill. Right. It's interesting. And obviously you have resistance to change or at least elements that are, go against that change process across the organization, not just on the shop floor. You see this in other areas in mid-management as well. But coming to kind of leadership, one of the things that's fascinated me about Lean and Six Sigma, two areas that you've obviously spent a lot of your life involved in, is that I think everywhere people recognize this, the benefits to some extent, at least of these disciplines or tools for continuous mm-hmm. improvement. But why do you think it is that not every company in the world has adopted them yet? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Because on the face of it, it should be a no-brainer. Oh, well, here's a set of tools that can improve your business. It generally comes down, I think, this is my personal viewpoint here, someone in leadership, you know, a director-level person has had a positive experience using Lean or Six Sigma-based tools. They're more likely to embrace it because they know the benefit that it has, but they have to invest time and money into making it work. Whereas if someone's had a a poor experience with it, are they likely to go back to it again? Didn't work last time, don't like that. Whereas it's okay to fail sometimes. These tools are there to try and solve difficult problems. And sometimes they're not always successful. It doesn't mean they're not good tools. It just means you need to approach the problem from a different way. Lean and Six Sigma tools should, in my opinion, be embraced more widely, but it really is down to the culture and the leadership of a given business as to whether they are truly embraced or not. Right. Now, we've obviously talked a little bit about Lean and Six Sigma. I'd like to talk about the differences between the two. Which do you see as the right tool for the job? Obviously, it's a slightly loaded question. It is a a very loaded question because it depends what the job is. And I saw on on LinkedIn recently, someone posed a question and said, oh, what's your favorite tool in Minitab? And my answer was, well, whichever one answers the question I've got in hand at the time. Right. (laughs) Really depends on what you're trying to do. So to Lean, really, it's about removing waste taking waste out of your process. Whereas Six Sigma is trying to take variation out of the process. But in my opinion, they complement each other because I could come along and do a Six Sigma project and say, well, I can take most of the variation out of this for you, but it's going to cost you so much money that it's no longer a lean process and it is no longer viable for business. Equally, you could take a lean project and strip so much of the cost out, you take the controls out with it and make the variation unwieldy. I think you have to factor both in, but really the defined stage of any project needs to look at, well, what are the key goals here? What are we trying to achieve? Am I trying to reduce the scrap rate? Yes, but I should have measures in for I need to do it without increasing the cost significantly. I need to do it without increasing the lead time significantly. Those are the other measures that are important. When you do that, you're able to measure or set, define what good looks like and then make sure that whatever solutions you come up with meet that initial mandate that you've come up with. Right. Mm. Now, so coming to um, the Six Sigma and Lean as a professional route, obviously you've been doing this for a long time. What advice can you give to aspiring Six Sigma enthusiasts? I love that phrase, Six Sigma enthusiast. That's great. <laughs> um, don't go in speaking a foreign language. And what I mean by that is, and, and I've made this mistake myself, you, you want to show how much you know the statistical tool. So I'll go in saying, well, this process is normally distributed, but this one has a viable distribution. The standard deviation is this, the CPK is that, and people instantly just think, what is he going on about? Because they haven't had this training and, and they don't, they're not so keen on understanding all those terms. So I found in a way that you've got to break it down, go in and, and 
you know, show them, show them the graph, show them the tools if they're interested, but actually just explain, well, what does it really mean to them? Okay, this process has a, a CPK of two. What that really means is if you have a car and it's X wide, the tolerance is twice as wide as the car. The car is your variation. The garage is your goalposts. You can get it in every time without scratching it. Now, if you use a CPK of one, you're going to scratch your car every time you get it in. Right. Yeah, and then yeah. you'll have a defect. So, and and some people um, identify with with explanations like that better than others. Some people just want to understand it. It really depends on understanding how they want to see the information presented. How important do you think it is to get qualifications, black belts? Do you think this is something that people should be going towards? Well, I'm very biased on that one because I'm a qualified black belt and I think it's done me a lot of good. I think it really depends on the individual. Yes, you need to learn the right tools and techniques and the skills because they are important. You're there to provide structure and guidance to people who are trying to solve a problem. And that's really important. I think it's something that should be pursued by more businesses, you know, and, and investing in their people. I'd say green belt training is great, obviously the right place to start. That's where I started. And Part of that was doing a project with 20% of my week. And I very quickly went up to Black Belt because I, I enjoyed it and I wanted to do it as a full-time role, which is what I ended up doing before I moved to Wimbro. Yes, I'm biased, but I think learning the right tools and techniques is key. It really is. I mean, is it really possible to become a Six Sigma specialist without going through that qualification process? Well, you wouldn't have industry-recognized qualifications if you didn't. So even if you could go learn it all from the books if you wanted to, if you were so inclined, but... Is that going to hold much weight in industry? Not really. No, you, you need to be able to show that you've done an industry-recognized course and delivered results thereafter. Right. I noticed sort of discussion that you'd been having about the dangers of promoting a good engineer into a manager's role just because they're good engineers. I'm interested in that transition and how it connects as well to people with Lean Six Sigma backgrounds. But first, like, why is it so tough to get an engineer to go into a manager's role? Typically, it's because the skill sets required for both of those roles are very different. So if you look at an engineer, an engineer is concerned with how do I solve said problem in front of me? And they tend to be, I mean, I'll look at myself here, I'm an engineer, data-driven logical, analytical type people. And to be a manager, your skill set is different. You're looking to try and motivate a team of people to achieve a result, not necessarily do all that work yourself. So you have to be able to set the vision, apply that vision in, in the form of some very smart targets for your team, and then help and motivate and mentor them into achieving a result. And that is a very difficult skill. I mean, I found it hard. I stepped up to management and I found the first year incredibly difficult because I hadn't appreciated how different the skill sets were. I do now. And a lot of the reason I'm talking about personality types is because I've done research in that area to try and understand why certain people are the way they are. I could quote you an example. Someone said to me once, what do you think if I say, treat people the way you want to be treated? And we all went, oh, that seems reasonable. That seems fair. And he said, oh, no, that's wrong. He says, treat people the way they want to be treated. And I didn't quite understand it at first, but you've got different personality types. Some people want a long, detailed discussion with you about all the nuances and the detail about the problem you're in. Some people just want the bullet points. And if you try and drown on them with, with detail, they switch off. They don't want to know. So I, I would say, yeah, understand your own personality, but also understand how others will interact with you and it will go a long way to getting your message heard. Right. So do you think Lean and Six Sigma are engineering tools or management tools? 
I'd say they're both. <laughs> Depends on what you're trying to solve, doesn't it? So it comes back to the definition always. I've used them in both guises. So I've tried to solve very, very tricky engineering problems with lots of data behind them. Equally, a lot of lean tools should, and some Six Sigma tools, can be utilized by the management team. Simple things to take away waste. We talked about the workshop earlier. The shop floor, you can remove waste very easily by the layout and making things easy to follow. Things don't get lost. Everything has its place. You know, shadow boards for tooling are a great example of that. I know where everything is because it has its place on the board and I only have the tools available that I need. Instead of someone writing through a toolbox going, oh, where, where, where did I leave that rent? Things like that, they seem simple on the house, shall we say, but it takes a lot of forethought to say, right, I'm going to create sufficient and I'm going to make sure that I do things a certain way. Right. Coming towards the end of the podcast, I think one of my last questions is really going to be about the future of processes. That's what we are, of <laughs> course. And so I'm interested in what do you feel the future of continuous improvement and quality management is going to be? It's a very, very broad and open question, isn't it? <laughs> Deliberately so, I believe. Demands are going to change in the next 20 to 30 years. A lot of emphasis, if you like, will be placed upon corporate responsibility and ethical behaviours. So I think a lot of these tools, like removal of waste as a lean tool and removal of variation as a sigma tool, and they're broad brush examples, will be utilised to try and solve the more ethical dilemmas that a company is going to face. I think that the shift will be that the focus on the removal of waste won't be driven by pure greed and cost. It'll be because of ethics and and a, a demand from the customer base to do so. And I, th- I think it'll it, it'll hurt in some industries more than others. But there's a massive push now, you know, for renewable energy. Well, there's several ways in which renewable energy will will come about. But if if the creation of um, a whole industry of renewables, you know, say, say the manufacture of solar panels as an example, but you're pumping out loads of CO2 to create these panels, that's not going to be acceptable to people. As, as an example, I don't know how they're made, but, you know, so the, the way in which manufacturing faces up to those challenges and the expectations of uh, governments and the customers is going to be key because it will drive how improvement is is viewed and and when it's put in. Are the leadership teams in these businesses really going to be um, geared up to understanding what the consumer really needs? Some will. Some will take time to catch up. Interesting. Well, Chris, thank you so much for your time today. It's been fascinating to learn about your perspective on the things that we've discussed. And I look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Future of Processes podcast. I've really enjoyed talking to Chris Sidney from Winbro about the differences in achieving change in the US versus the UK and his views on how global environmental concerns will drive the future of processes. For more discussions on the future of processes, please visit futureofprocesses.com. Alternatively, if you'd like to talk to me directly, feel free to email me at ben at futureofprocesses.com. Finally, please also share this with anyone in your organization that you think might benefit from it. See you next week. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I did I did note some some stuff down and and um, I probably I probably didn't drive it, but it's actually that's always the way of it though. Right. I mean I think it's the, it's the same thing with electric cars, right? You've got cobalt and 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 the the, the, the kind of lithium. Yes, lithium, exactly. Yes. Which is a, a big problem, right? Um and this is gonna be something that while electric cars clearly have some benefits, they, they tend to cause geopolitical sort of hell elsewhere. And that's um, something we're going to have to reconcile. 
Yeah, I think there is a bit of a stepping stone, if you're being honest. I mean, the electric car is, is great. The emissions are not at the point of use, but the emissions are somewhere else. And right. the the, um, the battery technology, I think, is, is really where that's going to be. So, you know, the, the, the rare metals that are in the batteries today, that's going to be unsustainable. There's going to be, need to be a lot of research in that area in order for it to become a, a sustainable industry, in my opinion, again. But I, I think that's where we are. Um, the, the last thing I would I would say is you asked me what advice I could give to aspiring Six Sigma enthusiasts. I, I love that that term. I really do. I think it's great. 